It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is February the 15th in 2023, and my guest is Joey Crook. Joey is the co-CIO at Pantera Capital, the first U.S. institutional asset manager focused exclusively on blockchain technology, with 4.1 billion assets under management. Joe is also the co-founder of the Forecast Foundation, which contributes to the development of Augur, a decentralized oracle and prediction market protocol. Joey is a pioneer in the world of blockchain finance, and I want to take this opportunity to discuss two leading questions. One, how might the final takeover of DeFi over traditional finance look like, uh, and what are the barriers that we need to overcome? And second, I want to talk about how the new flash financial system may look similar and different to the old one. At Pantera, Joey has been building a venture-focused fund as well as lead their token investment portfolio. So I'd like to learn some of the key insights that Joey was collecting and was following Joey and Zoe's work um, through other podcasts. So I'm really glad to have you on my podcast today and, and learn from you. Joey, Joey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great. Joey, can you tell us a bit more about your background? How did you end up doing what you do now? Yeah, so, so the way I got into what I do now, um, I got into crypto initially in, in 2011 just through uh, Bitcoin mining, um, just like mining with a couple of GPUs I had. I used to be really into um, video games and, and have like a computer that I built and when I came across a post about Bitcoin on a form about overclocking, um, I, I kind of just fell down the rabbit hole and started mining and then didn't really do a whole lot in the space until 2014 when I came across Ethereum, uh, started working on prediction markets and Oracle systems with Augur. And then, you know, through that started meeting other investors, other founders and entrepreneurs in the space. Um, started advising and kind of seed investing in some early stage companies. Uh, things like Zero X and Numeri were kind of the first couple um, of, of projects that I invested into. And that's sort of how I met the team at Pantera um, and, and eventually ended up joining and, and you know, kind of doing a lot of, I'd say, early stage like DeFi and token investments, um, you know, over the last, you know, number of years. Great. So what's the thinking behind Augur and the mission that you're advancing with Augur? Yeah, the, the thinking behind Augur was, um, you know, if you look at, if you look at blockchains in general, right? Like they're, pre they're pretty good for, if you want to create, um, some sort of financial market that's, you know, inherently global, um, and they're pretty good at creating like enabling like kind of user generated content because um, they're generally relatively permissionless systems. You know, so if you think of something like, um, you know, television, right? Like it's, it's pretty hard to get on TV. Uh, once you do, you're pretty restricted in what you say, um, you know, those, those sorts of limits. Then when the internet came about, you know, anyone could put anything they want out there. Um, it, it may be useful content. It may be completely useless and it doesn't really matter. That's kind of the point. Um, and so if you look at, what crypto enables, it enables you to do those similar sorts of things that permissionless kind of new uh, creation of basically financial markets in this case. And so for Augur, the idea is let people do that um, and let them basically create betting markets on kind of real world events. Um, so that could be anything from, you know, a, a football match all, all the way to, 
whether a president will get reelected or not, or whether like the next year is going to be the hottest year on record. Like you could really put mix them on anything you wanted. Um, and what's cool about that is you get real-time pricing for what the market thinks about real world events, which I think is just like, uh, to me, it's always been like an intellectually interesting idea. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. For listeners of this show, you might remember episode three, where I talked with Robin Hansen, one of the main thinkers behind Prediction Market, and Tom Bennett, who is the founder of Futur. What does, what, what edge does crypto give to Prediction Markets in your view? Because when I discussed it in episode three, Robin and Tom were a bit not sure we need crypto necessarily to make Prediction Market work, at least for our purposes or the use cases that we want to see. Yeah, I think I mean, it depends on the use case, um, like like anything else. Um, but I think the benefit of crypto for it is is that you inherently kind of get a a global um, a global like global trading pool, right? Like you think of something like Betfair, which is sports markets. Betfair in the UK is actually not the same as Betfair in Spain. Um, the odds are different, the prices are different, the order books different, the liquidity is different. It's not shared. And the benefit of crypto is you generally get pretty global liquidity on these markets. So you might have better pricing, you know, more efficient markets. Um, you might be able to bet in larger size. Um, and then the other thing you get is kind of much, much easier ease of experimentation. You know, if someone wants to create a new prediction market and they want to do it in a centralized fashion, um, and you basically you have to create a new company or, or email existing centralized company and say, Hey, please, will you list this market? You know? Um, it'd be great to see, and I'd love to see it. Will you do it for me? Uh, they might say yes. They might ignore you, or, or or they might, you know, not respond. Or, you know, versus a crypto version, you can just go to it and and create a new market on basically whatever you want. And so it has this kind of permissionless like aspect to it that allows you to experiment much more easily. Those are probably the main the main benefits I'd say. Like there's other other benefits that you get to larger scale with crypto prediction markets are not at. Like you have to think of something like that there, which is predominantly sports. Although they do have some other stuff, they take very high percentages of, of, of profits. If you're a large market maker on Betfair, they may take 30, 40, 50% of your profits to allow you to use the exchange, just which is just like rent seeking, right? Um, and in crypto, you don't really have that problem as much, but crypto prediction markets have never gotten to that level of scale and that's even been relevant. But the permissionless innovation piece is, is relevant even with small uh, dollar numbers. Great. So, You've been investing for a while now. Can you talk a bit about your thesis as an investor and also kind of comparing DeFi versus non-DeFi? Because as I, because I saw besides Pantera, which is you know, investing in DeFi, you also have an angel list syndicate where you also invest in non-DeFi companies. So how do you bridge those two? Yeah, so I mean, I haven't, I haven't syndicated anything in a, in a long time, but yeah, I used to do a bunch of angel investing in kind of more traditional software companies. Um, and for the, for the most part, and like the way I describe the difference between something in crypto and some of this kind of more traditional software is first off, I'd say there's a lot of similarities. You know, the most important thing with in, in either type of investing is investing in really great teams um, that are going to be really perseverant to solve problems and that are, you know, charismatic and able to hire, sell, raise money, um, do all the things you need to do to sort of build a movement around a company because that's sort of what a company is and, and to kind of rally people around some shared vision. Uh, so that's what's similar. What, what is different, I think, is that in crypto, you, you also do have this like aspect of like the community you're building matters more. And there are certainly centralized companies where that's the case. You know, if you're building a video game, if you're building an MMO, if you're World of Warcraft, um, the community around that matters, of course. But you can't do things that will just make the community angry because then they'll people will just leave the game. They'll, they'll stop subscribing. Um, and in crypto, there's there's some similarities there where like, you know, if you're building some community, say the community of developers like Ethereum has, and you make a series of decisions that make them angry or or that are kind of like unaligned with the core ethos of it, people might migrate away. Um, luckily, Ethereum hasn't done that, and so it, it's it's we worked out very well. But there's other projects that have maybe like strayed from their vision or whatever and, and made their communities angry. But I think that's, that's one piece that's different. And then the other piece that's different is like the value capture piece is different. So if you think about investing in traditional startups, the goal is basically to create some system, insert yourself in the middle, charge a fee on it, and 
you know, maximize your, your profit, um, on, on that. If you're creating something in crypto, if you just come out right and like slap a fee on something, people are going to be like, well, this is like, um, like, like people are not going to use it. They're just going to be like, oh, you're just like adding a large fee in here. You didn't really create any value. Like, what are you doing? Um, and, and so figuring out like, how do you charge fees in crypto in a way that, that you're actually getting paid for something useful, um, it's an interesting problem. And, you know, it's a bit different than like the traditional startup world where, um, and it's last because the people have much more freedom of mic migratability. If you don't like Uniswap, you can use zero X. If you don't like user zero X, you can use Uniswap. It's, you know, if you don't like either, you can use something else. Um, versus like, if you don't like Facebook, sure there's alternatives, but they're kind of all garbage. Um, you know, or you don't like Twitter, like, I guess you could use like Mastodon or whatever. It's just like a different, different problem set, I think, due to the fact that all this stuff is so open source and easily transferable. Got it. Um, and I'm, I'll ask a question partly also because, you know, in DeFi or when you can tokenize like a company or protocol or DAO or, or sort of reward people in tokens, that seems in many ways and had a conversation with David Johnson, for example, um, sort of more rational and makes it easier and saves you tons of lawyer fees and makes the market more liquid. Right. So that's great. So I talk to a lot of people who want to see only that. They're kind of purists. And then others who are sort of, you know, many of course are not yet bought into the whole DeFi crypto thesis. So they stay with traditional equity because that's kind of what they know. That's what's regulated and whatever. Um, what I personally see is I really like sort of that end state of DeFi, but I also see a lot of the best practices aren't or haven't yet developed, right? So we're still figuring out how we build the proper bridges and guardrails between these two systems. And I do see a lot of exciting companies that opt into, hey, I'm going to stick with the simple stuff. So I'm going to do like a Delaware company with traditional equity because, you know, I don't want to innovate necessarily like in a financial area and develop like new tokenomics or whatever. I want to innovate like in a hardware or in a biotech area or in like this other key innovation that I care about. So how do you, um, how do you, how do you think about that? Do you like to rather, are you right now much more excited about sort of the more DeFi world or sort of, can you understand, or would you even recommend companies to stick to the traditional equity side if that's what they want to innovate in? Yeah, I mean, definitely tr traditional equity uh, companies, I think make a ton of sense. Um, you know, like, like I invested in a bunch of regular equity companies as well. And, and, you know, some of them work, some of them haven't, right. But, but I think like the, um, the stuff that's most interesting to me about DeFi and crypto is not necessarily changing like the corporate form, right? Like this is some people have this notion that like, oh, you get rid of a cap table, you place, replace it with tokens and, and that solves kind of all the problems that exist. And it, and it's like, well, not always like, or, or actually usually it doesn't, right? Like usually it doesn't solve, um, any problems it, and occasionally it will solve a problem. Like, like, you know, maybe like tiny fraction of a percentage of the time it, it's useful and most of the time it's not. Um, the main innovations in crypto, I think are, are more around like the fact that you can create these kind of permissionless financial markets on anything, um, that you can have financial markets to operate 24 seven with no bank holidays. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me why wire transfers take a day or two. Um, and heaven forbid, if it's an international wire transfer, most of the time those fail because there's like some slight mistake in it when you input the data and every bank uses a slightly different format. And so all those things, like they just don't make any sense. Um, in the same reason, in the, in the same way that like going to the store and buying, you know, a CD-ROM with music on it didn't really make any sense, uh, given where tech was going. And then so if you take it back to like the corporate form piece, um, there are plenty of companies where it totally makes sense to just have a Delaware C Corp and call it a day. Um, and there's, there's some more crypto benefits, like if you're trying to make uh, Uniswap, you know, that, that protocol doesn't really need like a C Corp per se, um, to, to work. But if you're trying to make like a biotech company and, and create a new drug, um, I think a C Corp is probably the best way to do it would be my, my view. Yeah. So I'm curious, sort of, we already touched on this legal stack, right? So you could have a Delaware C Corp, you could be a DAO. Right now, this is kind of the question, do you use oh, jurisdictional wrappers and LLCs for DAOs? And if yes, where do you use them? So there was a, 
hope that Wyoming could be kind of a, a good domicile for that. And right now, it's a bit under question. What do you see right now or what do you recommend that, that startups opt into? Right. So you see kind of an emerging form that's the model of choice in the tokenized space. Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish the answer were yes. Um, but when I think about like the, the past, like 50 investments that I've made, you know, very few use the exact same structure, um, versus if you're like on the crypto side, right. And then on the, on the equity side, almost everyone uses the same structure. If you're, if you're American, it's a Delaware C Corp. And often, even if you're not American, it's a Delaware C Corp because it's easier to raise capital. Um, and, uh, but, but in crypto, no one's really figured out the ideal structure. I think also because the regulatory environment changes all the time, right? Like there are places where it was very trivial and easy to create a company in this space at certain points. And then it's kind of evolved over time, right? Like if you remember a lot of these early token projects, they created Swiss foundations and that works very well for a period of time until something weird happened with the Tezos foundation and the guy in Switzerland like tried to steal the money or something or, you know, something funky happened and then no one used that structure anymore. Um, and, and there's other structures that make a lot of sense cause tax problems. Um, and, and so figuring out like, how do you optimize for like a legally sound structure that also satisfies investors that also doesn't create major tax issues for anyone involved. Um, everything ends up being kind of these one-off bespoke structures. And I think like probably at some point over the next four or five years, this phase will kind of coalesce on some, around some standard that makes sense, but it hasn't gotten there yet, basically. Is it a problem from an investment side if you wear your Pantera head? Or do you just, or I do whatever you structure you opt into, we um, sort of, we buy the tokens and, and we're fine? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter too much from an investor standpoint. Um, you know, as long as the structure that someone's using doesn't create tax issues as an investor, uh, and it doesn't create legal issues, you know, um, as long as those two things are, are checked, um, the structure doesn't matter too much on the investor side. Um, and often as an investor, the term sheet at which you invest in, you know, looks pretty similar, even if their company's entity structure may be wildly different. Is the soft right now also the to-go instrument to invest in, in token companies or are there also alternatives by now or? Um, people still use DAFs. Um, they also use like um, equity term sheets that have like a token warrant. So you can basically buy tokens, you know, at a very small price alongside equity that you're buying. Um, that's more tax efficient for various reasons for the company. Um, and there's still some people who use staffs. Yeah, those are basically the main two structures that I see. Great. Um, now I'm curious how to choose the right legal stack for a fund, right? So. I opted with my VC funds to do first off like a traditional Delaware play, right? So I have three Delaware entities, right? So a managing company, a general partner entity, and then L and the limited partnership, right? So I'm not yet using that for token investors because to me, I don't just don't know yet what the best legal stack is for that, right? So I do right now traditional equity investments, but, um, you know, I'm starting to think, okay, how could the right legal stack for a new fund that has the flexibility to invest in tokens, how could that look like? So what legal stack did, did you opt into um, with Pantera? What would you recommend to, for, for if you were to set up a new fund? I don't remember, I don't remember all the exact details of, of kind of the, the structure we used. Um, I know it's all pretty like vanilla and in standardized stuff. Um, like we didn't like, innovate on the crypto side by like, I remember a few years ago, um, maybe it was like five or six years ago at this point, um, blockchain capital did a fund that was like a tokenized fund where you could get like a security token that represented your interest in the fund and stuff. Um, you know, we'd never done anything like that. I think as, as far as like, um, fun, fun structures go, you know, the one innovation I see, it's kind of interesting, um, over the last few years is kind of the, the model that you know, AngelList and Naval kind of publicized like the rolling fund model. I think that's interesting. Um, you know, especially for people who are like solo GPs. Um, and then also just like the AngelList syndicate model is also an interesting one. Um, you know, cause you can kind of do one-off deals as needed. And, um, yeah, that, that, I think it's like a really 
valuable model, at least when I first got started investing, it was, it was super useful. Um, and so either of those models are kind of like the, the two main inno interesting innovations, I would say. Right. Can you talk about how investment into, in, into crypto has evolved over time? When you started, what was, what was, what did the world look like for crypto investment? Yeah. So, so when I started, um, I'd say what it, what things look like for crypto investing, you know, it was like the state was very early, right? Like you had a bunch of people raising for, well, actually, actually go back to where, like when I started, like, it's like 2016 era, you know, I invested into zero X, um, which, which I, they didn't call it a staff. It was basically the first, one of the first staff deal. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot, uh, that was like going on at that point in the market. Um, you know, you had some funds that existed that, that, you know, like, like obviously Pantera, you know, Polychain and, and a handful of others, but there, it wasn't like there were a ton of token deals. And then if you fast forward to early 2017, um, the space heated up very quickly. Uh, a ton of people are doing, you know, ICOs and launching new token projects. And I remember in the 2017 era, the market just moved super fast. Like you would, you, you would see a company and, and you would have like, you know, a, a few days to decide whether to invest or not. It was, it was very manic, um, you know, maybe not quite dot-com boom crazy, but, but close-ish. Um, and then, you know, after, after that cycle, people kind of like calmed down. There's, there are not that many deals in the bear market. Um, and it's starting kind of 2020, things ramped up again, but with a much more like sane, uh, saneness to it. Uh, you know, people are raising at lower valuations. Um, their structures made more sense. You had more time to diligence the deals, that sort of thing. And then obviously at some point in 2021, it got crazy again. And, um, you know, I, I would say never really felt as crazy as 2017 did. Um, you know, but the price has definitely got out of hand. Um, like if you look at like the board API called Brown that got done, you know, early 2022, um, I forget the exact price there, but it was something crazy high, um, that, that, you know, in a, in a sane market environment, ever would have happened. Um, and, and so I think like that's the nature of crypto. It just follows these cycles and, and its cycles tend to be, you know, very extreme to the upside and the downside. And I think we're kind of just probably just getting to the very beginning of the next kind of up cycle here. Yeah. So since we're at the beginning of a new up cycle, I'm sure many people are interested in getting into crypto investing. Um, so what's kind of the one-on-one -on -one things that people should know once they get into crypto or token investing, right? So what is different from investing when you compare it to traditional investing in traditional equity in private markets? What's different about, about tokens is just valuations are higher. Um, you know, almost always, it, it, even in a bear market, valuation is going to be higher. The reason they're higher is you, you usually don't have further dilution. Um, after you invest, if you invest in the C round of an equity company, you know, you may have to take 0.8 and take it, raise it to the fifth power maybe. And that's kind of your average dilution. Um, you know, assuming it works out well, but on a token deal, the price is going to be higher, but you're not going to get diluted, um, even if it works out. Um, and so that's like one thing to keep in mind. Um, cause if you don't realize that you'll just pass on every deal. Um, and then, and then you're just out of the market entirely. Um, outside of that, I would say the other thing that's, that's different is, is just like, there's a lot more infrastructure kind of investing in crypto. Uh, than other areas of tech because other areas of tech are built out more. You know, if you look at crypto, stuff like the like UI, UX layer, stuff like the wallet layer, you know, things like that have really barely been built out at all. Um, I mean, you have stuff like MetaMask, which came out um, years ago, and that's still sort of the state of the art for for how you interact with crypto. It kind of reminds you of like dial-up um, in the early internet days, uh, which which I was very young, but I do remember and it was super clunky and you couldn't like do a phone call at the same time. And it was just super slow. Um, and I think like the thing you have to keep in mind when investing in crypto is it's, it's still sort of in that era. Um, 
and I think it'll get out of it, but it, but it just, you know, it's, it's, it's like, even with like a professional will, fund yeah. that has billions of assets under management, do you use MetaMask wallets? Oh, as an investor, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use MetaMask for like, um, you know, like, like you wouldn't use the wallet in MetaMask. Um, mm. you know what I mean? Like you would use something like Fireblocks or, or a custodian, like Coinbase or whatever, uh, stuff like Fireblocks basically has like first around stuff that basically lets you do what you would do using MetaMask. Um, there's actually even a BitGo, which is a, a regulated custodian. They have a wrapper around MetaMask. It's called like MetaMask, um, institutional or something. And so like you can use these products as a fund, um, but I say, actually, if you're talking about UI UX, like the UI UX for funds or hedge funds or venture funds, or whatever, is actually worse than the retail UI UX. Uh, like MetaMask is certainly easier to use than, than, you know, the equivalent, uh, institutional thing for a fund. So what wrappers do you use for the MetaMask wallets? If, if you want to do like, you know, use a, like an actual custodian like BitGo, um, you can use what's called MetaMask institutional. Which is basically just like, it's the same thing as MetaMask. It's just like, I think it may have changed the color of the logo. Um, but, but, you know, it, it basically connects to, uh, BitGo in the back end. So you can do, you know, transactions with something like BitGo, which is like an actual custodian. Um, there's also stuff like Fireblocks, um, which is, which is a similar kind of thing where you can interact with DeFi as an institution, but have more controls around your capital, right? So if you're, if you're an end user, and you use MetaMask, and you click a button, and you send all your money away, you may be fine with that risk, especially if your wallet only has like a few hundred bucks in it. Um, but if you have a wallet with like a hundred million dollars in it, yeah, you want that to be like multi-sig controls, um, you know, behind like multi-factor, you know, multi-factor authentication, and a bunch of other kind of like controls and parameters around what, what let you send money around. Um, because if you don't have that, like you, you have pretty high uh, security risk. It's that's what these like solutions like Fireblocks have basically created is ways to do transactions in DeFi while also maintaining the security that's required. Like if you're in, an institutional investor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you don't know which these wrappers are. Are they like Wyoming or Delaware or something completely different? Oh, they're not legal. They're not legal wrappers. Like they're just, they're just like, um, they're just like actual like software wrappers. The, these, these things aren't, aren't like legal solutions. Um, from a legal standpoint, you would just store the funds in like a, if you're a hedge fund or venture fund, you would store it in like, I don't know, like it be some hedge funds or came in hedge funds, some are based in the US. Um, you know, it would be owned by like a limited partnership basically. All right, got it. Anything else that's different once you go into crypto or token investing? Um, because one see. thing that I was wondering that seems kind of an advantage once you go into it or what seems to attract people is the liquidity aspect of it, right? So it seems like, all right, if you have tokens, you can basically have a choice as a company, you know, you can be fully liquid or you can offer lockup periods, right? Yeah, so that is actually another big difference. Um, in crypto, you, you have much faster liquidity. And that's a double-edged sword because it's faster liquidity, both for the investor, but also for like the founding teams. I'd say over time, liquidity horizons in crypto have gotten longer. You know, in the, in the 2017 era, stuff would launch within months and you would be fully liquid. And then that pretty quickly changed to be like, okay, stuff will launch in two or three years and then you'll be liquid. And then that changed to like stuff will launch in two or three years. But when it launches, you're, you'll kind of best over two to three years. But that's still like five years, you know, it's, it's still much faster than, um, you know, equity based companies. Um, I actually think that makes it like harder to invest though, because you, in a, in a venture equity company, you're, you're just forced to hold it and you can, you could try to sell it on a via secondaries, but it's annoying and clunky. And if you own a lot of it, if you sell it, like people aren't going to, like, 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 for instance, if you tried to sell a huge amount of some early stage startup, people are going to be like, oh, there must be something wrong. Um, and then, so they'll, they'll not want to buy it kind of thing. So you can't sell that much via secondaries, but, um, with crypto, you can, the, and the challenge there is like, then it's like, okay, well, I'm just have it in your portfolio. You have to make a much more active decision. Like, do I hate this thing? It's going to 10 X or hundred X from here, or do I think it's like, this is it and market's like crazy and this is just overvalued and, and I want to get out of it. In general, I tend to optimize just like holding stuff lo longer because I think that 
you know, even if you make a bunch of mistakes on, on stuff that you shouldn't have held, the stuff that you do hold for a long period of time will like more than make up the returns, just given like the, the kind of tail distribution of early stage investing returns. But, um, there are people who try to more actively like, you know, trade in and out of these tokens once they get listed. Yeah. That's, I found that a super interesting learning. I heard you say that it's in one other podcast. So I just want to, I said, and, and bring that message home, right? So. When you do traditional equity investing in venture, you keep the equity for like seven to 10 years, right? Because you're, um, and the startups are very, they go, when you observe the company, they go up and down a lot and they run through a lot of problems, um, but the good ones eventually succeed. And it's really an outlier power law business that return, that return your funds, right? Um, but one thing um, with, with VC investing is, it's not liquid, right? So you cannot, so the money, you won't see anything in like, you know, up to 10 years or even longer, right? So many investors kind of don't like that, right? So that their money is in these kind of Ill illiquid assets. So that seems to be something that's good for crypto, right? Because it allows you that flexibility. But I find your learning so interesting. Well, actually you want to hold it, right? So it's kind of a human universal about trading too much instead of just, uh, instead of just holding it, right. And in venture, it just makes a lot of sense holding, holding the equity and holding the asset. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I find it's interesting because there's this institutional, we're now building like DeFi, like a new financial system that's kind of eating in many ways, the old financial system, but we're also like discovering some things, you know, are probably done fine and correctly in the old, the old TradFi system, right? Did, did you have any other insights like that from your investing in crypto of things that surprised you? Because, you know, it seems like TradFi had already figured this out and you thought through crypto, you could do it completely differently, but hey, TradFi kind of had a point. I would say that, you know, the stuff that works in the traditional financial system, what would that be? I mean, I think, I think like there, there are certain things that traditional finance has figured out that work really well. Um, one of those is like, the idea of like, you know, the corporate form corporations with shareholders that, that, you know, have certain, certain shareholder rights and that have, um, and that have like a board that represents the interests of, of the shareholders, you know, for the company, that stuff works very well. It's not surprising that it works well because it evolves over hundreds of years. Um, I think it would be surprising if crypto figured out a way that was like better than that. You know, I think, I think, uh, the stuff that doesn't work well in the traditional financial system tends to be more like, um, it tends to not be like, like it, like it tends to be like self-referential. And so what I mean by that is like, if you look at like the, um, the financial institutions itself, themselves, like banks, if you look at a company like JP Morgan, roughly half their, their, you know, profits basically like, like their profits would basically be doubled if it weren't for all the buildings and, you know, the people costs that they have, right? And obviously you can't do the same thing as JP Morgan and fire 100% of the people. But I do think you'll be able to take software and do the same thing and fire 95% of the people. Like, I think like, like, like my thesis is that 95% of what JP Morgan does or any of these banks is effectively, um, you know, really, really way over bloated and the software based systems can replace most of it. And so if you look at it from that, that perspective, then you have this extra basically doubling, doubling of whatever the value of, of is all these bank profits. And, you know, some of that's going to go back to the user. Some of that's going to be captured via, you know, fees and stuff to go to token holders, whatever. Um, but I think like this current system, the way it exists doesn't, doesn't really make a ton of sense, but like the things that have evolved over decades or hundreds of years in finance do make sense. Um, like corporations, like, like the, you know, the idea of like stock exchanges. Um, there are also certain things that, that you could argue sometimes make sense. Um, like, you know, trading hours, there are benefits to them. Um, like you don't have to stay out 24 seven monitoring the market. Um, it provides cooling off periods for markets to digest news. Um, I would argue though, that those things are not worse. Like they're not worth the cost of having trading hours. Um, and it's better to just trade 24 seven. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's like, like arguing for trading hours for those reasons. It's kind of like arguing for 
um, newspapers as opposed to, you know, real-time press because, well, it provides time for the people to digest the stuff. It's like, it, it's kind of like an arrogant, like stupid, like argument, I think. Uh, but that, that would be the argument that the financial system would make. Um, but I think, and I think like, like, like certain like financial instruments that have been invented by the traditional finance work really well, right? Like mortgages work really well. There's problems with the system, sure, but like the concept of it works, um, you know, or, or things like, you know, even things that people kind of hated on, um, like certain derivatives, like credit default swaps and things like that. Um, like, yeah, people packaged a bunch of garbage in credit default swaps, um, and, and sold it to other people who didn't understand what they were buying. But that doesn't mean that like the financial instrument itself is useless. They're very useful and, and, you know, huge amounts of capital are, are traded in CDSs every day. Um, and so I think like a lot of stuff in traditional finance is it's useful, like when it comes to like theory or concepts or like the way certain market things work. Um, it's more just that like the other stuff around it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, uh, and that's sort of what I think crypto should replace. Yeah. So you said 95% load that some of the big bands have. So there's a lot that doesn't make sense. Can you give a couple of examples of the bloat that crypto and DeFi can do away with? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like, if you think about the, the legacy banking system, right? Like, I think in general, you, like the, the cost of like bank branches is just like a waste of, a waste of money for the most part. Um, they have these huge, you know, generally like pretty fancy real estate footprints, um, that are mostly kind of for like the ego of, of these legacy institutions. Um, and you know, I, I know like for me, for instance, I've used one of the online banks for like a very long time and I hadn't set foot in a bank branch in, in forever. Um, it's, that's one example. Um, I think another example is like banks have people that manually check certain parts of wire transfers because certain parts of the process still happen on paper. Um, that should just be digital. Um, you know, my, like my computer is not going to make a mistake there. Human will sometimes, um, you know, there are parts of the banking system that like are useful, you know, like you think about like, you know, the big banks, they do have certain divisions to help with like large company kind of like fundraising and stuff like the IPO process and things like that. That also certainly quite bloated and clunky, uh, which is why you've seen some companies do direct listings, you know, in the last cycle. Um, but at least it adds like value to the world. First, it's like the model of, you know, you deposit $100, we lever it up and lend out a bunch uh, to other people, you know, and, th and then we pass you on a, a tiny piece of it. Um, like that model is just like inherently bloat. Uh, I think it's like why people hate banks. So like people know intuitively that they're getting scammed. Um, you know, like you go to a bank, you look at, you look at, you know, how much does it cost to borrow? And, th and then you look at how much you get paid for as a depositor. And it's this huge spread. Um, and obviously part of that spread is there for reasons of risk and some people are going to default that, you, you know, it's never going to be one-to-one. -one. Um, but if you then go to like DeFi and look at the same spread, it's much smaller, um, cause it's a much more efficient market and you don't have all these other extra costs. Um, they don't make sense in a software-based world. Another example is, is the regulate regulation piece, right? Like banks have so many regulations surrounding them because of the fact that they're people and people cannot be trusted. And, you know, if you look at software, obviously you can write code that does bad things, but if you have a piece of code and it's been out there for years and people agree that it generally does good things and, it, and, it, and, you know, it's, it's been proven to work. Um, I think you need a much lighter touch regulatory environment than you need for the banking system. And that also drops cost. Um, cause the cost of compliance for banks is a huge portion of their, um, of their business. And obviously, you know, I don't, I'm not one of those people who thinks that crypto is going to have no regulation or whatever. But it's more as I think it, it, it can be and probably will be lighter touch than what exists for the traditional banking system. Yeah, I agree. That's also a big part of what I'm, what this podcast is about, that the regulatory piece is causing a lot of bloat, especially because the regulations are monopolistic, right? So you typically have one government and one jurisdiction that makes the rules, right? I mean, you can change jurisdictions, that's fine, but then you lose access to like large capital markets. And especially a large capital market like the United States has, you know, monopolistic regulation. And that just is not very good in optimizing kind of the stability it wants to provide with the efficiency, 
right? So you can tell every car to drive one mile per hour. Yeah, then everything is safe, but it's just very inefficient and making the whole system um, run and fulfill its purpose, right? So I think a lot of regulation, especially um, you know, after 2008, the financial crisis, you had 98% fewer bank charters. Right, so that means the banking system and TradFi is centralized even more. Right? So that increases the risk of the next financial crisis and everything. Like, so I think there is a big risk and big bloat that we could overcome with DeFi. Anything to add to that thesis, or what do you see kind of as obstacles for DeFi to replacing more of the bloat in TradFi? Yeah, I think, I think obstacle wise. Um, yeah, there's, there's still this obstacle of like, how do you make it kind of both like usable for the average person? How do you like abstract away a lot of the complexity of it? The average person can use it. Also, like, how do you, how do you tie it more to the real world? Um, you know, if you look at, if you look at DeFi, right? Today, it's largely people doing things within crypto, um, for kind of other things within crypto. It's a bit recursive. Um, tying it to the real world is difficult because it involves, more complexity it involves the traditional legal system. Um, I do think that'll eventually happen, but yeah, it hasn't hasn't happened yet. And I think we need more companies to kind of build on top of DeFi that that kind of serve as like this bridging like UI UX layer that's like a little bit more centralized, but easier to use. And, and like eventually people will will kind of like migrate over. But but um yeah, you can't, in my opinion, you can't just build like a DeFi thing. And like hope that the average person will use it. The usability of the space needs to basically rise up to to the average user's level as opposed to hoping them to, you know, come down to it. Also, UI UX demands have got a lot higher. Um, you know, in the last 20 years, like like like, like it's something like the internet were created today and the hoop to jump through at the user to use it was the equivalent of like dial up. I just think it wouldn't take off. Um, like I think people wouldn't use it. And you know, crypto is still a little bit in the dial-up era, so it needs to kind of advance beyond that, basically. Yeah. I wonder what is should be the strategy or the strategies for DeFi, right? Because on the one hand, DeFi needs more interoperability with sort of the standard legal systems and TradFi, right, to kind of increase its user base and adoption and attract institutional capital. So you could argue you need to build more of these interoperability and guardrails and sort of build dialogue with, you know, the traditional system, which includes, you know, the legacy institutions, the regulators, whatever. But you could also argue, well, that's kind of pointless because, you know, see the New York um, licensing process that sort of didn't work for us, right? So it was outregulated. And sort of many of these institutions and including the, the regulators and um, U.S. U.S. government right now is kind of taking an increasingly hostile stance, right? So you could also argue, hey, we need to just continue building and sort of increase adoption in some of these areas and replace some of these existing legacy institutions without really seeking their their permission. Which one do you see as um, kind of more fruitful or more necessary to realize DeFi more? I think it... it if, if like, if the tech industry ever waited for, for government, you know, to provide a roadmap for clarity or frameworks or whatever to do things, I just think, it, you know, the world would never move forward. And so I think, I, like, from my view, at least, obviously, you can't, you know, wait for, for some, you know, world to eventually arrive. Also, because, you know, the only reason the government is going to make a framework around something is because someone has, like, built something that requires a framework. And so from that perspective, like you think about like one example is the self-driving cars. If, um, if Tesla didn't exist, you know, the government's never going to write like legislation on self-driving cars. Um, if Tesla didn't exist, I mean, they haven't even written it still and, and it does exist. Um, and so, and so I think like you kind of just have to basically as a company or a startup, you have to kind of move forward and build and do it in a way that's like respectful of, respectful of like the spirit of the law. And there's always going to be like some, you know, gray area where how certain things work is unclear because the law was written, you know, in many cases, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years ago. Um, and so that's, that's like that side. 
you know, I, th- I, th- I don't think it's like, it's not, it's also not useful to do stuff that's like purposely, you know, like confrontational, um, you know, at the same time. Um, but I think like, you know, generally from what I've seen in crypto, people mostly try to kind of follow the, the path I just described. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I like that idea of, you know, we have to build some of these rails for the use cases, right? So, and I'm in a space where, you know, that's increasingly, or that is increasingly happening or um, working towards making that happen, right? So there's jurisdictions like Portugal or Estonia or Puerto Rico or where I'm based Prospera that is entering kind of a jurisdictional competition. Like you could either, you know, completely move here physically, right? Have um, sort of more flexible um, legal wrapper around your life, basically. Or you could use it just as a domicile instead or on top of together with a Delaware C-Corp or LLC to be able to do things, have um, sort of your ownership over a wallet recognized or things like that. So do you see... You know, thinking about my listeners that are thinking of developing some of these solutions because we could, you know, directly implement some of these things into law in some places. What do you see as gaps that, you know, builders, companies or investors in the crypto industry uh, need? I think from a legal standpoint, like the biggest gaps in the law are just, um, if you if you look at like the U.S. as an example, a lot of the rules around you know, the way trading systems and platforms and stuff like that works. Um, lending is another example. Um, they're all written for a world where, you know, it's largely manual processes done via paper. And even if they're written for a world where, you know, technology is envisioned, they're certainly written for a world where that technology is centralized and controlled by you know, a single company or a consortium of companies or, you know, a nonprofit, some sort of traditional legal structure. Um, and then even those systems, they're also all written in mind with the idea that like you can just revert or undo anything if something goes wrong. And also that like there is some benevolent dictator in charge who will know whether something is wrong. Um, you know, and and, and all those assumptions kind of fall fall flat. Um, when you have decentralized kind of open source systems. And so I think like you think about what does, you know, good regulation look like for crypto or like for DeFi specifically, you know, it, it looks like things like, you know, I, I think eventually you have to start regulating. Well, if you want to, if, if you want to regulate it at all, right. You know, I think, I think I'm always a light touch regulation person, but I'd say, you know, if, if, if you decide to regulate it as a government, you probably start looking at things like requiring developers of smart contract platforms to do certain things. And those things would mainly look like, you know, one, if you're going to launch something to a bunch of users and it's not just like an alpha or beta or whatever, if you're going to launch it in production with field money, like you're probably going to be required to like get an audit, you know, um, and, and make sure that the code is like reasonably secure. Um, and you get into questions like, how do you do that? You have to get into free speech questions. So obviously if you're just launching this as like an academic exercise, you're publishing some code to GitHub, that's free speech and, and that shouldn't be infringed upon. But if you're doing it where like you're making money off of it with like an entity and stuff and, you know, you made $10 million off some token that you launched around it, then there's a much more credible argument for saying, hey, you should really be required to have this software audited. I think you will eventually see, um, see rules, you know, maybe not anytime soon, but like decades from now in the US, like if you have a smart contract and you offer like some DeFi thing to a user, you'll be required to offer certain things in the user interface. Like you might be required to offer them to buy insurance against smart contract risk or something like that. You know, like there'll be kind of like general consumer protection principles that apply. And I think that's the biggest difference between crypto and traditional finance. Like traditional finance, uh, the, the rules and regulations are kind of built from the perspective of a centralized operator. Um, and I think in crypto, if there ever are actually custom rules and regulations written for it, they'll be much more from the perspective of like, what can we encourage or require people to do that's like protective to consumers? But it won't be things like, in this scenario, you know, un- under this particular circumstance, this person needs to revert a trade. That's just like, that sentence is nonsense in DeFi. Um, that's, that's my kind of general thoughts on it. 
Got it. Um, anything else that we haven't yet talked about that you see as a um, barrier for for DeFi to overcome? I think the only other main barrier is just like it is. It's kind of like confusing if you're new to it. Um, you know, like like what it even is, what it enables you to do, how do you access it? The difference between like DeFi lets you earn money on effectively dollars versus DeFi lets you take the big bet that crypto is going to go up. You know, there are two related things, um, but from like a, yeah, you put a thousand dollars into it thing, very different, right? Like in one of those universes, you put a thousand dollars in and a year from now you might end up with, you know, a thousand and twenty dollars or whatever. Um, another, another one, you could end up with zero or a or hundred thousand, right? Like it's, you know, they're two very different bets. And I think we'll, we'll start to see more kind of apps, um, target like more retail users that kind of like differentiate between those two use cases. And if you look at something like a Coinbase right now, it's mostly going after the use case of like, you, you put in a thousand, you hope it becomes a hundred thousand. Yeah. You're, you're investing. Right. Um, and if you look at kind of future DeFi, I think we'll see some that focus more on just like helping users earn a better yield than, you know, traditional finance or even apps that like combine both traditional finance and DeFi and help you earn kind of like the best like risk adjusted yield on your cash, like stuff like that. Right. Great. I found it super interesting to um, get the insights from you that, um, you know, there are some things in the TradFi system that work. So when you're trying to do it differently in DeFi, you know, you'll still arrive at the same things that TradFi did. And in other cases, there's much more flexibility in DeFi, right? So it's very worthwhile to continue pursuing the goal of building out a more decentralized financial system while being open-minded enough to learn what has the traditional financial system done correct, uh, where is an um, interesting or good interoperability with the system that can help sort of scale that innovation further and bring it to more people. So I found that a really fascinating conversation. Anything else in your own interest that you want to shout out to listeners? Uh, anything you're looking for when it comes to you know people who should approach you for whatever reason? Anything you want to draw their attention to? Yeah, I think if you're, if you're looking to reach out to me for, for anything, whether it's, you know, you just want my opinion on something or, or you're an early stage startup or whatever, you know, feel free to ping me on Twitter. Uh, I'm just at Joey Krug. Um, my name, you know, all our lowercase, no spaces or anything on Twitter and also Telegram. Um, so feel free to, yeah, hit me up for anything. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joey, for coming to the show. Thank you. There's a new flavor to love from Starbucks. Smooth, buttery, caramel-flavored coffee for your Nespresso Virtuo machine. Now available at Target. Bring home rich, authentic flavor to savor any time of day. Made just the way you like.